You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Northeast Farrier Supply. I'm in Brisbane for the Australian Farriers Conference, and this is the second day. Yesterday, I uh, saw a fantastic presentation uh, with Chris Pollitt and Brian Hampson, and they were supported by Jen uh, Lugton. And uh, today, I've already given my own presentation, so I've taken the opportunity to sit down with Brian Hampson and have a chat with him about both his life and his research, and especially what some of that research means. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Simon. Okay, let's uh, first of all try and cover how you got into horses. Um, you started professionally, first of all, as a physiotherapist. Yeah, yeah so I've been a physiotherapist for, I think, 22 years now. So I left school, I went to university for eight years full-time. I did a sports science degree first, majoring in biomechanics and exercise physiology. I then went on and did a physiotherapy degree because I was interested in sports and sports performance in those days. And then I had my own physiotherapy practice for a number of years down in Sydney and on the Central Coast. And then got into rehabilitation and that was rehabilitation physiotherapy of mainly older folk for a a large number of years, for about 10 years, I was up in central Queensland, uh, up in the, the northeast of Australia, and I made artificial limbs for a living. So that would have been the majority of jobs of, of, of my, my day's work was making artificial limbs for amputees. And I guess that gives me a little bit of background to understand the you know biomechanics of horses and you know, it led on to shoeing. Okay, so so quite a long time as a physiotherapist. Were you riding horses then? Uh, I didn't start riding till I got up out to the bush areas in Australia. So I grew up at the beach, um, surfing and fishing, and I still surf now. So I live behind Coolum and Noosa on the Sunshine Coast, and I surf nearly every day. So I get up early in the morning, and I'll go for a surf. I'll then um, go to work either as a physiotherapist or maybe trim or shoe a few horses and then I'll ride my horses in the afternoon. So that's a typical sort of day for me. So I didn't grow up with horses. I didn't actually ride a horse for the first time until I was in my 30s. I'm 55 now. Um, But then I tend to get into everything that I do in a fairly big way. So I rode my first horse out in the bush um, with a helicopter, mustering a couple of thousand head of cattle. And when I had, after I had a day like that, I thought, okay, this is the go for me. And uh, that really hooked me onto horses. So that was on a weekend. And then I think by the next week, I bought a horse. And then a few months after that, I had half a dozen horses and it just went from there. So I got right into it and yeah, I still love my horses. You, you probably had quite good balance from your surfing. Probably. It? That might have had something to do with it, yeah. Yeah, all these are transferable skills, eh? Yeah. So, so then, so you've, you've, you've mentioned about going out in the outback and then you got into the Brumbies. And then how did you turn that into research into the Brumbies? Yeah, so uh, I was a physiotherapist for about 15 years, working rehab, making limbs, and I was just looking for something else. You know, I think that 
Um, these days, we can all do a couple of professions in our in our life if we want to do. And so I was looking for something else. I'd sort of reached what I thought was the, the top of my field as a physiotherapist. You know, I was an educator and uh, a mentor for young physiotherapists. And so I went back to university and I did a master's in equine physiotherapist, physiotherapy with um, Catherine McGowan, who's a vet, um, Australian vet, but works over in the UK mostly now. And um, that got me interested in research. So I did a master's, did my research uh, in animals. It was actually GPS tracking working dogs as they were um, doing a day's work um, working cattle. And it just happened that our last lecture over that two-year period was from Professor Chris Pollitt, and it was on the foot of the horse, um, the, foot, the horse's foot, anatomy and lameness. And Chris and I met up after that uh, for a couple of drinks. <clears throat> he found out that I was interested in the bush and that I'd already been out um, with brumbies, catching brumbies, breaking them in, and he'd always wanted to do a study on the wild horse foot or feral horse foot and we got talking about that and in no time at all I was signed up for a PhD with him and we went out together and with a, a, a you know larger group of people then we spent the next four to five years just researching the feral horse's foot so I sort of fell into a little bit by accident but I always wanted to do a PhD you know I think a PhD you know you're lucky enough if you if you get the opportunity to do a PhD you've You've, your family's got to let you do it. You don't have any income for that period of time. You know all about that. Um, that becomes your life and it sort of takes over. I always wanted to do that, to make a contribution um, to science and in this particular case, contribution back to horses. Well, my advice to uh, young farriers, whether they're doing the fellowship or some that I've encouraged to do a master's is you have to study something, A, that you enjoy and are yep. interested in, but that you have access to. Mm -hmm. so, so mine was because I've got lots of foals. Yeah. But for you, lots of brumbies. Yeah, so. sure. Well, you know, if you're, if you're going to do a study on feral horses' foot and or feet and wild horses' feet, then Australia is a place to do it. Yeah. We've got five times as many feral horses in Australia than the rest of the world combined. So this is where yeah. you want to be. I think, I know it goes up and down depending on the... Yeah depending on the uh, weather conditions and droughts. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's about 1.2 million, is it? Yeah, that so, estimation? yeah that's, a, that? that's, that's a pretty good estimation a few years ago, 1.2 million. There's been a lot of management of feral horses in, um, in Australia over the last three or four years, particularly in our national parks and in, in our Aboriginal land, which is where most of the horses are. And we think now that the number fluctuates between... 600,000 and probably a million horses. Yeah, and to put Depending that in perspective, on the weather. UK and Germany have the biggest horse populations in Europe. Yeah. And they probably don't quite match that. They're mm. probably around about a million. Yeah, right. Well, so it, that it, puts it in perspective. Yeah, and so, you know, Australia has a lot of domestic horses. Well, we've got yeah. two million domestic yeah. horses. So, you know, Australia is a very horsey country. Large portion of our population rides horses and keeps horses. But, you know, we've got, so let's say we've got two million domestic horses and uh, half a million to a million brumbies, so a lot of horses here. So I, you know, I went to, I think, the first presentation you gave to farriers in the UK six or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that was for handmade shoes, and you had an audience of 150 each day. Yeah. 
300 carriers out of a population of 3,000. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good hit to hit 10% of any group. And I, I don't mind saying to you, Brian, for me, that was probably the most influential day I had because it changed the way I thought about uh, where and this thing, should we say natural wear, for want of a yeah, better term, yeah, mm-hmm. because we'd had 25 years of having it thrust down our throats sure. about how all horses wear mm-hmm. and how we should model that. Mm-hmm. And of course, you dispelled that. It wasn't that you didn't find horses that wore in that manner, mm-hmm. but you found a whole range, didn't you? So if you can tell yeah, us something sure. about this range of wear and why it occurs. Yeah, so, you know, we, um, we set out to find what the natural horse's foot was. And at the time when I started my PhD, I was a barefoot trimmer. So I had always trimmed my own horses. The first horse that I bought had shoes on it. And I had no, you know, like I said, it was only the week before that that I'd ridden my first horse. So I bought a horse and it had shoes on. And I I probably didn't even know that it had shoes on because I didn't know anything about a horse's foot. And um, yeah. You, you can guess that those shoes eventually fell off and I wouldn't have known that either. And, and then, you know, then one of my horsey friends came around one day and said, listen, that, that horse has got really long feet, you need to trim it. And, and then I thought, oh, well, how do I do that? You've got to get the farrier around, etc. So I did. The farrier came around, took some hoof off, reshod that horse and I watched the farrier and I've always thought that if someone else can do something then I can probably do it as well and my, you know my dad taught me that so yeah, you know, I, like that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not putting down what farriers know but um, and I've become a farrier since then but you know I, I figure it, it's not it's not rocket science and so you know I really put my head to thinking hard about the horse's foot I already had my background in biomechanics and um, and so, you know, I, I learned to trim myself. So I was trimming at that point for myself and for my friends, you know, not for a business. And uh, and then I started reading on the internet and in books what about the natural horse. And at that time, the natural horse foot or the wild horse foot, everything was coming out of America. You know, Jamie Jackson had a couple of books out. Hildred Straza talked about the natural horse's foot in her trimming style. And, you know, I, I could see that they were quite different from each other. So that didn't really make sense to me. And that really wasn't what I was seeing in my horse's feet and in my friend's feet. And then meeting Chris Pollitt, we, you know, had discussions about the natural horse's foot. And we decided, well, let's go and find out what horse's feet really look like, you know, in a, in a natural or semi-natural environment when they weren't influenced by us. So they weren't confined in paddocks. Um, they didn't have anyone trimming them. They didn't have people shoving, you know, nutritional aids down their, their stomachs, etc. And, uh, yeah, so we just, we got into that research to find, to discover what the natural horse's foot was. And one of the big influences that we found on the horse's foot was where, like you alluded to in that question. So it, um, the foot really depends on what sort of wear the environment gives the foot and the wear is um, determined by how far the horse moves in a day, in a week and in 12 months and that's determined by the separation between food and water. So if he's got grass right near his water supply then the horse doesn't move much at all but then in the desert areas where the conditions dry out and you get into drought then the grass close to the water hole gets eaten out and then 
horses might have to walk up to 50, 60, 70 kilometers away from that waterhole to find some grass. So when they start doing those miles, um, particularly over hard substrate, you know, if it's soft sand, they don't get so much wear. If they're on hard rock, they get a lot of wear, then the foot really gets knocked around and really gets worn down. Okay, so that was the, the main part of your PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, but you have looked at different trimming techniques since mm -hmm. then, haven't you? Yep. And I wonder what your findings are on, on this, this, these various trimming techniques. Yeah, so uh, I guess I can, yeah, I can talk about a couple of points there. So firstly, the Mustang roll. So the, the first wild horse's feet that I saw were in the very early days of the internet. You'd remember that when you used to, I think, I pull out your telephone line and, and hook, your hook your computer in and then dial up internet. So, you know, the, the photographs were usually of the same foot and still is. When you, I, I did an internet search this morning just getting ready for my PowerPoint tomorrow and, the, you know, if you, if you Google wild horse foot images, the same foot comes up as what, did, as what came up 10, 15 years ago. And uh, just that one foot, and that's a Mustang's foot that looks to me as if it's 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 half worn out. You know, it's probably a young stallion that is doing lots of miles chasing mares, and he's really knocked that foot around. And it does; it's got a Mustang roll or a big bevel around the outside, but that's the only foot that we saw. And so, people were persuaded then to think that that's what the natural horse's foot looked like. Um, we didn't find that. Um, so we saw lots of variations of feet depending on where the horses lived. So if they lived in a, um, an environment where it was soft footing, so, you know, soft surface and they didn't have to do too much walking, then their feet look just like our feet do at home. If we, you know, if we don't ride the horse every day and if we don't shoe it, um, you know, the, the feet grow long, they get a little bit flared, eventually they break away. So, you know, that's just one version of a wild horse's foot. The feet that we, we did find that looked like that, you know, original photograph of wild horse feet, and there were plenty of them, they were in the desert environments where horses had to do a lot of kilometres, a lot of mileage over hard substrate, and the, the wear was excessive on those feet. And that's when we saw that big Mustang roll. And, um, and that foot was particularly in the young stallions. You know, young stallions, when they're five, six year old, they haven't been with mares, but they're chasing mares. So they will, they will move up and down a mountain ridge from the mountainside to the waterhole, chasing groups of mares, fighting with their stallions. And those young colts, they'll do six times the amount of miles as what every other horse in that area will be doing. And so their foot looks totally different. And it looks like that foot of that American Mustang that we see on the internet. Um, so I don't, I don't really see that as being the natural horse's foot. It's one variation of the natural horse's foot, and it's one that's it's worn excessively. So not something that we should model all our trimming on. No, that's right. You know, there, there might be a situation when a, a trim or a farrier would want to create that foot. I'm not really sure when. I haven't found that situation myself, but um, it's certainly not something that we'd want to model every trim on. Um, another type of, another uh, aspect of, of how our research relates to trimming would be with a square toe. So there are trimmers around the world and some farriers that like to square the toe off on a horse's foot because they believe that's what the natural horse's foot looks like. And we did find that in some situations. We had the advantage of GPS tracking horses. So we darted them with a tranquilizer 
and we put a GPS collar around their neck. So we know what sort of mileage mares do in certain environments, what sort of a, um, what sort of mileage that young stones, those five, six-year-old stones that are, are doing in environments as well. And the foot with the square toe, it's, there's two reasons for it um, that we found in our research. It's either from horses digging for water uh, or digging for feed. So when there's no grass above the ground, horses are forced to dig and they'll eat rhizomes or the roots of grasses or the roots of trees. So they'll square their toe off from digging. The other situation where that square toe occurs is when they're doing excessive mileage and they're getting just lots and lots, too many breakovers, you know, more than a hundred, more than a couple of million breakovers every year. And so they're wearing that foot excessively or they're in sand dune country and they're dragging that foot through the sand and they're wearing it from the top of the hoof as well as from the bottom. So that's something that, um, you know, even though it does occur in a natural environment, I, I don't think that's a natural horse's foot as well. The majority of horses that we saw that were living in a kinder environment where horses actually can survive. You know, in these, in these extreme environments, horses die in large numbers from drought. Um, but when horses are living in an environment where they survive, like a, a mammal should do, and they can reproduce each year, the foot was just like the foot that we see in our domestic horses at home. Um, those that, uh, you know, in a nice sized paddock Different in the UK, we tend to have bigger paddocks here for horses. So, you know, our horse owners tend to have a paddock somewhere between 10 and 40 acres. If we keep one of our horses in that sort of environment, then we get something similar to what we see as being the natural horse's foot. And just remind me, there is a sort of daily kilometre if you have a, a domestic horse in a yep. large enough paddock. Mm -hmm. it will, and I ought to remember this, but I can't remember, 11 kilometres? Yeah, so that's yeah, a good question. Um, so it shows that you remember something from the presentations in the past, which is great. Uh, yeah, so as, as well as tracking Brumbies um, in different environments, I tracked domestic horses. So obviously if you lock a horse up in a six by six metre yard, it's not gonna go very far. They tend to walk up and down the fence occasionally when, when it's getting close to feed time. So those horses all, all were moved an average of 1.1 kilometres a day. And then if you increase the paddock size for that same group of horses, they'll obviously do more mileage. But there seems to be a critical point, which is around that 40 acre mark, where if you if you jump from 40 acres to 100 acres, the horses don't move any more than that. Yeah. Okay, so in, at least in Australia, 40 acres gets, uh, you know, produces a natural sort of movement in the horse. And it's around that eight kilometers per day mark. Okay, so that's, that's grazing time. They put their head down and they'll graze for about 16 hours a day in a large paddock like that. So they're always moving while they're grazing. And then once or twice a day in that environment, they'll go to water and back again. And they might have a bit of a jog around, but it's about seven or eight kilometers per day that they're moving. Okay. All right. You've also done other research since, and I know uh, one of the one of the few technological leaps in farrier in the last two thousand years has been coating steel nails with copper, and I know you investigated whether that does have an effect on on restricting microbial invasion of the hoof. Yeah, yeah, copper's been around for a long time. Um, the Romans used copper in medicine, like you said, a couple of thousand years ago. 
particularly in the UK, in the um, NHS, they've been impregnating their surgical gowns with copper and they're getting lower infection rates from surgery, which is pretty interesting. Um, when I saw copper-coated nails being used, I was interested in that, so I did a little bit of reading, you know, background about where it is used in you know, mainstream human health, and it is being used more and more all the time. So not so much ingesting copper, copper but a physical contact of copper with a, with a bacteria. Um, so and, and there's also a copper shoe that comes out of Chile and uh, it's a it's a copper impregnated shoe so you know and there's lots of claims that these things have got great results but um, you know after working with Chris Pollitt for the last 10 years I, I don't really accept anything at face value anymore so mm -hmm. if you know if, if there's a claim that might be important and I think that the use of copper nails has been increasing a lot over the last couple of years then we decided to, to investigate it. So we set up a, a nice experiment um, with 11 horses. So we shod them with the same shoe, with the same uh, nail, but in, in one shoe it was a copper-coated nail and the other shoe it was the exactly the same quality nail. Um, but without copper coating. So the, 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 left, the left foot was shod with copper nails, the right foot was shod without. And then we, did, we went through two shoeing cycles, then we had a period what's called a washout where we just took the shoes off, no nails, left them for two trimming cycles, then we swapped the feet over. So the copper nail went in the right foot and the, um, the steel nail went in the other foot. And um, during that experiment, we trim the horse's foot like we normally would, photograph the foot, and then we measured the, um, the amount of disruption of the nail hole. So a perfect nail hole is just a rectangular shape, which is exactly the, the same as what you would expect, the size of the nail. But when that nail hole has been invaded by a pathogen, whether it's a, um, whether it's a fungus or a bacteria, then the edge of the nail hole tend to break down and that disruption of the, of the hoof wall might extend for five or six millimeters around the nail hole and some of them totally disrupted. But anyway, in, in short, what we found was that the, the feet that were shod with copper nails were healthier than what the, the feet were that were shod just with the normal, the, the steel nail. So not the whole foot itself, but the, the, the health of the nail. So is the copper killing the microbes or is it just creating a barrier so then so they're not getting to the iron yeah no the, the copper does kill the microbes so when when bacteria come in contact with copper they die so in very close to 100 percent of cases but the important thing about copper is that it's got to be a physical contact so when a bacteria it's a single cell when it comes in contact with copper the cell wall breaks down and the nucleus dies and th and that bacteria is dead so but it's got to be total contact so if you put a piece of copper in a petri dish with bacteria it'll only kill the bacteria that climb onto that nail okay they, they it won't kill everything in the petri dish so what's important i think is that the nails maybe they should leach some copper uh, um, in a surrounding nail hole because you know we all know as farriers that as the shoeing cycle goes on from day one, there's a tiny bit of movement of that shoe and movement in the nail hole, and then eventually the nail won't contact with the hoof wall right for the, the full extent of the nail hole. Okay. So you, you mentioned that you start trimming, and you have actually mentioned that 
-hmm. you've become a farrier. So when I first knew you, yeah, you were just trimming, and mm -hmm. then you've gone through this process of learning to shoe. And I, I also know that amongst the barefoot trimmers, which we have lots of listeners, yeah, you were golden boy. Now, what do they think to you now, uh, now that you're shooting? Well, yeah, I'm not sure whether I was their golden boy, but they're really interested in what in in what we had to say. Both Chris and myself, um, you know, we were we weren't anti trimmers. We were, uh, I guess, we were mythbusters you know in that world and um it, we have made some impact on the barefoot trimming world and there's you know i i know most of the barefoot trimming schools around the world and i'm friends with a lot of those people i don't you know i don't go around dissing them and we have made an impact so you know most of those schools that i know they don't teach that big mustang roll anymore and the other thing that they don't do is remove all of the wall of the hoof and put the hoof and put the foot down on its sole yeah. and you know I, I think for some people they just needed to be shown an alternative and and be shown with some science background that those things don't work and they, and they actually do harm so you know i'm still friends with those people um and, but those that are, are really anti-shoeing that, that there's no as many of them around as what there was 10 years ago and those people, I, I guess, I just feel sorry for them because, you know, I was a trimmer for a lot of years and now that I can shoe a horse, um, I can do so much more with a horse's foot, and particularly when that foot's in trouble, you know, whereas I would have struggled for months and maybe not be able to, you know, affect that horse's foot. But it's just really nice to put on a, a hard bar shoe and, you know, and, and do something with a horse's foot that way or put some sort of orthotic appliance on the horse's foot. So from my experience as a trimmer becoming a farrier, I would suggest to trimmers, if you've got the ability, go and learn how to shoe. And that's just another tool that you've got in your bag of tricks where you can really make a difference to a horse's foot. Okay. So you, you so you came to shoeing late and, and trimming relatively late and you're a physiotherapist. Mm -hmm. uh, you must have a view on the effect of this on, on somebody's body. Uh, you know, I'm not holding myself as an example. Yeah. I've 46 years of yeah. shoeing and trimming horses. But, but how would you think, um, you know, how do we protect our bodies over a long period of time doing this sort of work? Yeah, well, I think the, well, there's different parts to our body. So I really can't do too much shoeing because of my elbows. So, you know, I kind of have a hammer in my, in my hand all day so, or, or a rasp. So for me, my downfall is my elbows. Um, so... There's not too much that we can do about that, except have apprentices, I suppose, that do some of that hard work for us. You know? <laughs> I'd have to say, when Barry said to me, what's the best thing for your back? I yeah. would say, yeah, an apprentice. Yeah. Uh, or the other thing is to use to use a forge. Don't hit cold shoes all day long. You know, that's just nuts. That's no good for your elbows. Elbows and wrists wear down. Um, but yeah, our backs are the main thing. And probably the best advice for our backs is not to bend over all day so every chance you get stand up and straighten up and so that that might mean not having all your tools within reach you know we all look for our toolbox being right next to us but it makes sense to me just to have one tool with you and when you finish with that tool that's just an opportunity to put the foot down give the horse a break stand up walk somewhere and stretch up stretch back a few times uh, you might get a little bit less done work done in that day, but you'll get more years out of your career. Well, there's some people say we have so many horses in our bodies, and you can use yeah, them up absolutely. quick, or yeah. or use them up over a period of time. 
All right, I've got to ask you the deep philosophical question, mm-hmm. which is, what's the most important thing you've learned in your life? Oh, okay, so the most important thing, it's really easy to remember, is to enjoy yourself and have holidays. I've just been talking to farriers downstairs and a few trimmers that just work their butt off. And uh, you've got to have holidays and you've got to enjoy your life. And I think that that work, family, holiday balance is really important to us. And I make sure that I do that. Excellent. I need to take your advice, even this late. Um, Just one final thing. Do you still go out to the Outback? Yeah, so uh, I just came back last week from the Outback. So Chris and I both get into the desert particularly. Um, We go to the other places that we studied as well, but we're both really attached to the desert. And I probably spend three months and every year out in the desert and working with Brumbies. So not doing research on their feet, but catching them, teaching people to break them in and riding them. Well, that's great. So thank you for your time, Brian. It's been great having the opportunity to speak to you. I think both of us had better get back to the conference. It's been a pleasure, Simon. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.